Hi there, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Edward Acorn, the Pulitzer Prize finalist and author of Every Drop of Blood, the momentous second inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. He's the author of three books, including two about baseball, which I'm sure are going to find their way onto this show at some point. But Every Drop of Blood is on numerous best of lists and is the number two best-selling Civil War book of 2020. Thanks so much for being here, Mr. Acorn. Thank you, Evan. Call me Ed. That, uh, Ed, all right, perfect. Uh, uh, and I'm Evan, the Evan and Ed Show. Uh, before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. We are witnessing history as this episode is being released. On January 20th, a new president is going to be given the oath of office, and he's going to stand before the nation with a task similar to what Abraham Lincoln faced in 1865. How do I unify people who are deeply divided, not just over the nation, but over the president himself? Now, I don't want to overdo this comparison because what could compare to the Civil War? Um, not much. But over the last four years, let's face it, America has seen politically driven violence, demands for equality, and even hundreds of thousands of people die. Before we get into Lincoln in 1865, explain how inaugural addresses are more than just symbolic of a new era. Well, right. I mean, they are, they are the way... Uh, an incoming president expresses a vision of America to the people. And uh, that's a pretty important thing. Lincoln, of course, used his 1865 address to do something that no other president did and, and or ever would do, which is not to gloat about the impending victory of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the Union forces in the Civil War, but to, to blame both sides for the sin of slavery and to try to urge everybody to realize that and come together without animosity or vengeance. And uh, to me, I don't, I don't see any politicians on the horizon uh, willing to do something like that. Lincoln's address in 1865 is not only one of his finest speeches, but is maybe one of the greatest speeches ever given in America. Um, describe Abraham Lincoln's mindset as he emerges emerges from electoral victory and as the Civil War seems to be nearing an end. Uh, you said in the book that he seemed to feel he owes an explanation for the agonies the country endured on his watch. In other words, he took it on himself to try to explain what they had all been through. I think Lincoln suffered immensely during that war, and he had a way of uh, searching his own soul about these things. And he wondered, he was engaged, he thought, in a noble cause of preserving the Union and putting an end through that, putting an end to slavery. And he wondered how a just God could draw, drag out this war make it so horrific, uh, invade so many families' homes with tragedy and loss. And he wondered, you know, how, how could a just God do this? And he, he concluded that uh, this fight had to go on until the great sin of slavery was removed from America and that this was a judgment on both sides. And I think he found that a politically... Uh, useful or important argument um, as the war neared an end because he wanted to say, in contrast to many other, pol or every other politician in the country, he wanted to say that uh, both sides were at, at fault, that slavery was something bigger than both sides, that, that God's uh, actions were something no human being could have contemplated at the start of the war. And it, through that means to try to unify the country and try to ease some of the fears in the South, which were uh, tremendous. I mean, they, 
the, there were politicians in the North who wanted to viciously uh, punish the South and leave it uh, essentially a moonscape, you know, uh, uh, and impose Republican rule on the South, which eventually was done. And Lincoln, Lincoln sought to use this inaugural address to try to bring both sides together. And uh, it was, as I write in the book, it was not received that way in the South or by Democrats in the North. It, but he, fa- go uh, ahead. He, he, he famously said, let him up easy. Yes. Let him up easy. You know, yeah, that's his, his mindset. He, he, from the start of the war, his only interest, really, his central interest was in, in unifying the North and the South. And he famously wrote to uh, Horace, uh, responded to Horace Greeley by saying, if, you know, if, if uh, we could have slavery uh, in, in a union, I would support that. If we could have no slavery in a union, I would support that. I mean, and at that point, he had been, he, he was ready to, to un, unleash the Emancipation Proclamation. But he still made that argument. He, he wanted to bring the country together in a union. Um, and he, he tried to do it initially without, without touching slavery in the southern states. And he, had, he eventually had to touch it as a war measure. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was essential, which, which uh, eliminated, uh, which freed the slaves in the states that were in regions that were still opposed to the, to the Union. Uh, he eventually had to do that as a war measure, and that was, in his view, the essential military weapon to win the war and, and bring this country together. Let's get a little bit biographical here of Lincoln. Um, I was thinking back to some of his other big speeches. Uh, I thought of Cooper Union. I thought of, um, although it's not a speech, but the Emancipation Proclamation, Gettysburg, uh, and then you have the second inaugural. And he, of course, gave hundreds of, if not thousands of speeches over the course of his career. But let's have you describe how Lincoln learns to recognize big moments, not only in his personal life, but in American history? Where did he develop that sense of importance from? Yeah, he, he, he developed as a writer. He developed in every way in yeah. his life. He learned, he had this amazing knack of learning and growing that, that was unlike any other politician in that era and maybe in our era. He grew up very poor. Uh, as everybody knows, in a lot, born in a log cabin, and uh, his his father was uh, you know, worked with his hands as a farmer and a and a uh, and a carpenter. And Lincoln grew out of this into this. He educated himself. He had almost no schooling, and he developed a passion for politics because he loved. Uh, he loved being with people. He didn't reveal himself to people, but he loved that sort of interaction. And as he went along, he developed as a speechwriter. He wrote, but in some of his early speeches, he, he had very compelling um, uh, phrases and arguments. Um, but as he developed, he, he became better and better at it. And he, I think more than any president of his era, maybe any era, maybe up to JFK or Reagan or something like that, he, he was able to use his speeches as a way to uh, just grab the public's attention. He famously, probably his most famous early speech was when he was running for the Senate in 1858. And he cited a, a line from the Bible, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And he argued that this country could not go on being uh, half slave and half free. It would have to be all one thing or all the other. And uh, he, he hoped it wouldn't take a civil war. In fact, he argued it wouldn't take a civil war to make that happen, but it would have, it would have slavery would have to be deemed by the country as an evil that would eventually have to fade away. And that, that speech, 
solidified his position as a uh, Republican leader in Illinois and also uh, led, led to his uh, nomination in 1860, I think, because he, he so gripped the people of uh, Illinois with that. And it was, it, it, was, uh, it was a speech that was very controversial at the time because it was uh, the people in the South suggested here he's saying the country cannot survive half slave and half free, and that's what it is. But uh, it, it definitely propelled him. And it, his use of language, uh, he, he loved the Bible, he loved um, Shakespeare's language, and he was able to incorporate these into his speeches in a way that's, I mean, it's just beautiful literature reading this to this day. And I think the second inauguration was his greatest speech. And it was filled, it was, it was uh, 700 words. It's delivered in five or six minutes, but it's filled with this sort of passion and, and, and recognition of suffering and deep thought about the human condition. That's, I can't imagine any of today's politicians approaching it. I don't know if that answers your question, but he did, he did, uh, he did use language and speeches to really uh, grab the public's attention and arrest their attention and make them focus on why we were fighting this war, uh, what, what challenges we faced, why this was the moment for the United States to, to do the right thing. And, uh, and when did he realize in his life that he could do that, um, that he could shape the public? Well, he, he, he argued the most powerful thing in, in American government is the uh, opinion of the people. And that he very early on uh, plugged into uh, the people in, in, his, in his districts. He, he, um, so, so I think he very early on understood You've got to make this connection with people. You've got to, he, he used humorous stories to make connections with people. He used um, very homey um, uh, comparisons or, or metaphors. And uh, so very, very early on, he understood this and he just developed as a writer. People, uh, I mean, the first inaugural was, was very beautiful. It had a passage at the end about appealing to the better angels of our nature. Um, but uh, the second, by the time of the second inaugural, it's, it's almost like something out of the Bible. It's so profound, filled with wisdom, filled with an understanding of, of suffering. And well, I, let's, I just think it's magnificent. Well, and we are going to talk uh, deeply about what is in this speech itself. But um, let's set the scene of Inauguration Day itself, March 4th, 1865. Right. Um, let's describe Washington, D.C. <laughs> um, if, if we can bear it. Uh, the description in the book is not exactly, it's not exactly flattering. It's this muddy mess. Half the people there are ready to party, or maybe more than half are ready to party. It is a party town in general. Uh, let's you know, describe what we would see if we could be on those same streets that are there right now, but 150 years ago. Yeah, well, I, I, can't, I can't express it as well as I did in the writing of the book, but, but generally, I mean, it was uh, a city of these uh, incredible buildings. I mean, the, the White House, the, uh, the Capitol, but there was mud, uh, there was dirt, dirt roads, um, it was, it was the city was famously divided between mud and dust. When, when it was uh, warm in the summer, the, the, the dust, the cow, the, the horse manure uh, for, just flew up and get, got over everything. When it was uh, rainy, it, it just turned into this yellow muck. And so this was, it was a, there had been days of rain leading up to this inauguration. So the, Pennsylvania Avenue was just covered with this yellow mud and that was a combination of uh, that and dust, dirt, and, uh, horse manure, 
everything. And it's a very seedy town. I mean, it is. let's be clear here. There's more than a bar or two. Oh, yes. There's, there's <laughs> prostitution all over the place. There's, I write about, a, uh, you know, the different levels of prostitution. There were A-rated houses and then uh, ones that were very dangerous and unseemly. Um, and it, but it was a city that had sort of burst beyond its seams because all of a sudden, you know, a very sleepy southern town with not a lot going on besides government. And then all of a sudden it turned into the center of this vast military effort and a government that was bigger than anyone had ever imagined it would be. Uh, and so the city was just filled with tens of thousands of people coming in. Uh, it had grown exponentially in its size during the war. <laughs> and, uh, oh. and so, so uh, people were living in all sorts of uh, conditions and um, escaped slaves had come there uh, because of uh, fighting in Virginia and so forth and, and uh, Maryland. They, they just flooded into the city. And so it was, it was uh, there were criminals wandering around. It was a dangerous place and a smelly place. And it was, it was gross. Um, there's also the second thread in the book, and thankfully it doesn't, they don't collide in the time frame that this book covers, but John Wilkes Booth is yes. lurking in Washington. Um, how did he find himself there or how did he get there? Why is he there and what is he already planning to do? He's, he's a major character in this book. Um, he, he, uh, he's a famous actor. Uh, he had... Um, but he had sort of suspended his acting career because he'd become so passionately devoted to the cause of the South. He thought Abraham Lincoln was a tyrant who was destroying the Constitution and destroying the way of life of America. And he felt uh, something had to be done to stop this man before he totally destroyed America. And on that day, he was stalking Lincoln he, he was able to get into the uh, inauguration ceremonies in the Capitol, I believe, because he was dating the daughter of a uh, New Hampshire senator who happened to be a uh, abolitionist Republican, of all things. And uh, he was able to get into the Capitol. And when Lincoln was leaving the Senate chamber, where um, his vice president had been sworn in, and was walking out to the platform, somebody who they later discovered was Booth slipped in behind Lincoln and was walking out right behind him. And somebody managed to stop him. There was almost no Secret Service protection back then. I mean, there's no Secret Service. There was no, uh, virtually no protection of the president. So this guy slipped in behind Lincoln and they were, they were able to stop him and question him. And they let him go. But uh, six weeks later, when he killed Lincoln, um, one of the people at that ceremony realized, oh, my God, this was Booth who was uh, walking behind Lincoln that day. And there's a lot of speculation that Booth intended to kill Lincoln at the Capitol that day. And it appears he's in the picture, right? There's, a, there's one well, picture. I mean, maybe. There's a picture. Yeah. Everybody says it's him. And I don't, not everybody People think it's him, but I, I have my doubts and some uh, people who are much more an expert in these matters than I am have their doubts too. But he, but Booth did describe himself as being in the crowd very close to Lincoln. And, uh, and he easily could have gotten out there even after he was stopped because they let him go away. Then he could just turn around and come back in. It was, it was fairly chaotic. Uh, Mary Lincoln could, couldn't get out uh, onto the platform until his speech was almost uh, over. And uh, it was just uh, somewhat chaotic. It's, it's hard to believe that uh, it operated in those days in that way. But it, yeah, now, now they, they, I mean, of course, Secret Service, I mean, there's, there's thousands of them, but, but now they bring down the inaugural procession one person at a time and they all take their assigned seat and everything is bright and gleaming and there's not a speck of dust anywhere on the uh on the platform uh, on the on the viewing stand so yeah uh, it's certainly a lot different um yeah. uh, I, I, on 
On page 111, you have a beautiful description of Lincoln. You say that um, with his perfected reading copy in hand, he exits the White House in his fine new Brooks Brothers suit and stovepipe hat, climbs up into a small carriage, and in the wind-driven rain of the early morning, before the massive crowds could block the streets, he splashed his way through the mud of Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol. Um, It's a striking scene um and it's it's wonderful because one gets a real sense of how sort of quiet and humble lincoln was comfortable being and then he gets to this capitol dome um in team of rivals doris kearns goodwin has two pictures one on the front and one on the back and at the beginning of the civil war the dome is under construction and at the end the dome is finished um maybe that's too much symbolism to even describe with words (laughs) but uh let's have you take a crack at it well, Lincoln was very determined to go through with that, even even though it was very expensive and it took away manpower and resources during this war, the struggle for the country's survival. But he was adamant that this the Capitol Dome would be completed as a symbol that the country was going forward. The country had not been divided. Um, the country was uh, still the United States of America. And that was a very important symbol for them. And they did manage to finish the dome in time for the second inauguration. And uh, it's, uh, it was, among other people, Walt Whitman, the great poet, who wrote about how striking the dome was, how, how brilliant and beautiful. And it, it meant a lot, I think, to the people of the country that, uh, that, that, that this, uh, this symbol of American, uh, the American Republic went, went forward in the face of everything else. And the country had not just gone through a war, you wrote. Uh, you also say it had moved towards freedom. So it's not just about going through this war. It's about moving towards a new kind of country. And you say that black people were in the inaugural parade for the first time. That's a, that's a striking moment. Describe what we would see if we were there on 1860, in 1865, what we would see in terms of whites and blacks getting along with one another. Right. Well, Lincoln famously called it a new birth of freedom. It was a different kind of America where blacks and whites uh, were citizens. And uh, Link, at the second inauguration, there were black soldiers this was something that would be un, not dreamed of in 1861, four years earlier. And they were pr- prominent at the, at the second inauguration. And then black people who uh, wore their finest clothing came out in huge numbers to, to, to hear the inauguration. I mean, I don't know if they could hear it, but they, they went on to the Capitol grounds. And there were many descriptions of um, black women wearing colorful dresses, their their finest clothing, to honor this man who had emancipated the slaves and changed America forever. Um, and I think that that's part of that poignant scene that day. Of course, the most famous black person there that day was Frederick Douglass, the the great abolitionist leader who was uh, sitting there, near, standing near the front of uh, the crowd, listening to Lincoln. He was not able to get into the Capitol building because blacks were not permitted into the Capitol building that day. And we are going to talk about what uh, happens later at the White House. So let's save <laughs> yeah. that for the end because sure. it's, it's, it's an extraordinary moment. Um, but uh, I don't want to make this a memory test for you, but describe, no, but- the, the, describe the program order as best you can. Uh, so Lincoln gets to the Capitol building. Take us moment by moment through uh, this whole proceeding uh, here before uh, he, t- he gives his speech. And it's not the way that it is now where no. the VP and the president give their speech at the same, uh, uh, the sa- uh, their oath of office at the same time. So describe what we would have seen well, had we been there. Well, the morning was this windswept, uh, rainy, tempest-type thing. I mean, the wind blew so hard that it, uh, as as Walt Whitman describes, it woke up some of the sleeping congressmen who were still, they, they had been an all-nighter because they were pa- trying to pass legislation before the end of the, um, 
the Congress, which took place, the end of the Congress was that day when the new one was sworn in. So they're madly trying to pass legislation up to the last minute. Lincoln went up early in the rain uh, instead of participating in the parade uh, because he wanted to sign these bills uh, as soon as they came to his desk. Um, and the, the people had to have tickets to get into this, to get into the inaugural festivities. So they all lined up, but it was so crowded. Some people had to uh, be lifted through the windows to get in in time. Uh, the ceremonies were in the Senate chamber and that's where the former vice president, Hannibal Hamlin was, uh, brought in the, the new vice president, Andrew Johnson. Johnson uh, had been <clears throat> sick leading up to this uh, event. He had gone to a party the night before and apparently had <laughs> and the party a party kept going, <laughs> a few drinks. And then the next morning to stiffen his nerves, he had uh, a couple glasses of whiskey large glasses of whiskey that uh, Hamlin provided for him. And when he, by the time he got in there to do his inaugural address, he was evidently drunk. And he, he had this crazy, uh, he was supposed to speak for something like 10 minutes and he went on this extended 30 minute harangue where he's uh, talking about how we all owe our power to the people and, uh, and he's haranguing the members of the, the um, cabinet and and poor Lincoln, who's who was behind putting this guy in instead of Hannibal Hamlin, um, has to show up and sit there and, and listen to this harangue with a very pained expression on his face. Finally, they 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 take uh, they're able to get <coughs> Johnson off the podium and. Uh, and proceed with the events. So they would, they marched through the Capitol to the steps of the Capitol. And that's where Lincoln sat down with Johnson and then got up and read his, uh, read his speech. And I believe the speech, yes, the speech at the time was delivered before the actual swearing in. So he got up and he read, read this address that he, you know, 700 words that he went over and over again. Really, he wrote this speech for years. And he, Lincoln had a way of very slowly writing speeches and um, going over it again and again and again until he got the wording perfect. And he, that's what he delivered this day. And then uh, there was a chorus singing a grand choral theme about uh, American democracy and the president. And then, uh, then he left and uh, a couple a while later, I believe they had lunch at the Capitol and uh, a while later he got into his carriage and that's where Walt Witness are waiting and he was ready to leave. And then all of a sudden his 11 year old son, Tad Lincoln came running up and jumped into the cat carriage and that they proceeded with the parade back to the White House. Um, when Lincoln takes the lectern, um, does it actually get sunny or is that that's, hyperbole? That's right. No, that's, that's one of the striking things of this day. It had rained all day. It finally let up. I mean, women's dresses were being ruined, which was a big day, big deal back then because uh, dresses were expensive and it was just the prized possession of women. And here they are trailing their dresses in the mud, but, but the rain let up a bit and then, they decided to go outside onto the platform. And when Lincoln was making his speech, all of a sudden, the sun broke out brilliantly. And uh, he said later on, it made his heart leap. Um, and it was a, it, many people at the time took it as a symbol that, this, that the long suffering was over. And Lincoln is heading into a second term. Everything's going to be brighter now. Everything's going to be better. And they have no idea that some guy in the crowd is going to kill Lincoln six weeks later. There are three sections that I want to talk about. Um, and I've quoted them here. Um, I'm going to probably, I guess I'll post the entire address in the notes to the 
episode, but let's talk about three sections here. And we hear one of these sections, the, the point that Lincoln makes debated to this day, was slavery the cause of the Civil War? Um, let me read the section. One, one eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern half part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. And you say that Frederick Douglass watching this address had a significant reaction to that. And all blacks now had a clear message from their leader that this was the root of the evil of the Civil War. Yeah, Lincoln Lincoln made a statement. Lincoln was the the first real analyst, I think, of, of that war, what it meant, what the historical importance of that war was. And he, he said it was about slavery. And that is something that Frederick Douglass had argued for years. This war should be about slavery. It should be about ending slavery. And he had been bitterly disappointed in Lincoln. Uh, both in his first inaugural saying he would defend um, slavery where it was, and, and uh, also during the war, how slowly he moved towards emancipation in Douglas's view. So Lincoln is saying that this war was about slavery was a, was a very powerful moment in American history, and it was, he was defining that war as it wasn't about states' rights, it wasn't about economics, it was essentially about this institution of slavery. And, you know, Lincoln admit, admitted in that little passage that it was a, I mean, essentially that it was a very strong economic uh, part of the, the South. And it was, uh, that's, it, it made it very powerful and very difficult to remove. The next section I want to ask about is, um, is this part here. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. He's always got a little rhyme in there, a little twisted yeah. phrase that works. Um, yet if God's will, he says, that it continue, uh, I'm sorry, yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood is drawn with the lash, there's your title in the book, yes. um, shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said uh, for uh, as I was said for three thousand years ago. So still it must be said: the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Um, how did Lincoln start to put the death that America had seen over the last few years into these words? on paper and he also brings up religion in that uh section i didn't probably didn't read it as clearly and cleanly as lincoln did but uh you can go in the show notes and read that little passage there um you said lincoln's hard life have left him with the thick scar tissue over his psychic wounds an expectation of disappointment um given the long futility of his struggle to shine in a world that seemed to be against him. So what was it about his childhood and religion that made him so capable of capturing this mood of misery? He says the mighty scourge of war, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray. Where did that all come from within him? Yeah, I mean, uh, God knows, but it's, uh, he, as a, it, he had grown up, under very trying circumstances, I think. And he had been disappointed throughout his life by a series of defeats. When, it, when he was nine years old, his mother died of this freak condition. The, the, uh, the cows that they used for milk had eaten a weed that was, uh, that was not deadly to cows, but it was deadly to humans who drank the milk from the cow who had eaten this weed. And that's how his mother died, just this uh, horrific blow from out of nowhere. Um, and his father left Lincoln and his um, sister in the care of a teenage relative, and he'd gone back to Kentucky to try to 
to marry uh, another woman to, to take care of him and the children. But he left these children alone in, in the wilds of Indiana. Uh, and they almost starved. I mean, they were dirty, filthy. They were eating dried berries that uh, Lincoln's mother had, had picked and left behind. So you can imagine what a, uh, what a painful and, and transformative experience that would be for a child. I mean, that's as abandoned as you can be, practically. Uh, and then he, during his life, he always, he talked about this frequently, he had an ex expectation of disappointment. And he was, he was disappointed over and over and over and over again. He lost uh, two runs for the Senate. He served only one term in, um, he served only one term in the Congress. And he was very unpopular when he left that term. Uh, he tried to gain a government position and uh, the uh, new Whig president wouldn't give it to him. So he had suffered defeats over and over. And I think this gave him, I mentioned scar tissue. I think that gave him a kind of strength uh, to, to endure disappointments and defeats all through that war, which were constant. I mean, I can't imagine anyone but Lincoln having the stubbornness and the ability to to accept pain the way he did. Um, what else were you asking? I was just asking. I mean, you know, you answered the question. I mean, that's how he he learns to put the death that America had seen over the last few years on paper. And he also, I, I want to mention, he also had developed very early on, I think, from his parents uh, religious background this idea of fatalism that god controls things that people don't ultimately control their fate they they can influence it but uh, things happen beyond people's ability to uh, control them his favorite line uh, was from shakespeare's hamlet uh, there's a divinity that shapes our ends rough hew them how we will uh when we, we all we can do is roughly hew uh, what roughly shape what we want to do but but god ultimately has his own purposes and we can't always see them and i think this kind of fatalism sort of protected him and and kept him going he had a belief that ultimately things would turn out the way God wanted them to. And that's, of course, that's infused all through the second inauguration, that God had a different plan than either North or South understood. Uh, this would be far more revolutionary, far more radical, far more devastating to the country than anyone had predicted. And, uh, but it was, he, he posited that this was just in the face of this because the crime of slavery was so great. The last passage I want to talk about is maybe the greatest passage of American writing ever. Um, certainly by I a agree president. with you. Yeah, certainly by a president. Um, yeah. uh, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we're in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who, sh who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to achieve and cherish a lasting peace among ourselves and with the world, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with the world. Uh, now, does he say the world or he says all nations? I believe he says all nations. Um, but uh, that's a, a stunning moment when he wrote it. Did he understand it would be repeated for centuries? I don't know if he understood that. He initially said, um, I don't expect this speech to be as popular as my other ones immediately uh, because it it's posited, posits that uh, people don't really know what they're doing, <laughs> that God has a different plan than their own. And people don't like that. Um, but he said, eventually, I think it would be, it will become to see, be seen as one of uh, my more important speeches. And that's clearly what it was. I think uh, malice toward none and charity for all really struck people. I mean, that phrase is so 
beautiful and binding up the nation's wounds. I mean, that's literally true. There were, gosh, uh, hundreds of thousands of wounded men around, the, young men around the country, uh, horribly wounded. And uh, he, he had this wrecked country that he was trying to bind the wounds and move forward together, not as enemies, not as people bitterly opposed to each other, but as fellow Americans. And that is the greatest task. I mean, I write in the book about, oh, the horrible divisions in the country by that point. And, what's, uh, the, what's the immediate reaction to the address? Um, and we should also ask how John Wilkes Booth took it, sitting there watching that day. Yeah, I think Booth was was deeply unimpressed. Um, <laughs> so, the, yeah, I bet. Yeah, the southern uh, the southern press viewed it as uh, uh, horrific that uh, this man was a zealot who was going to uh, wish God's punishment on the South. They totally misread the speech. Uh, the northern Democratic press was equally. Uh, uh, disturbed by it. They thought, where does this guy get off talking about God's will? He's just a politician. Why is he dragging God into this? And how can God be part of um, this horrific war with all the suffering, all this bloodshed? And uh, so, so it was very divided. Um, the Republican press, some people, some of the papers got what he was driving at, some didn't. Um, Horace Greeley, for instance, thought his first, thought it, it showed no uh, compassion and sympathy, and he liked his first inaugural better. Uh, and he ran the first inaugural on the page next to the second to, to prove his point. But of, of course, we, we view this as a profoundly compassionate speech, and, uh, and it really did work, I think, to bind the country together. However flawed that uh, mending was, um, and how people remembered those words for a long time, and also how brief uh, the the feeling of uh, of unity, I guess, would be. Um, describe the scene with Frederick Douglass at the White House. We alluded to it earlier, or at least we we set it up earlier. But describe what happens that night. Uh, there's a party. Um, Abraham Lincoln is greeting people. He had the foresight to wear gloves, which we would appreciate in our <laughs> in our COVID era, as he shook hand after hand. Uh, describe what it would have uh, what it would have looked like if we could have seen Abraham Lincoln in the White House that night. Well, they, uh, Lincoln had a public reception that night, which he had done from time to time during his presidency. But the recep- reception permitted people from all walks of life all Americans from all levels to stand in line and go into the White House, shake his hand, and then move along to the East Room and then out of the White House. And uh, Douglas, uh, who was not permitted to go into the Capitol earlier that day, resolved to go to the White House. He had met Lincoln twice in the White House, and he thought he'd be able to go to this reception and get in and and, uh, shake the president's hand. And the guards there stopped him at the door and said, no, black people are not permitted into the White House. And Douglas persisted. They let him in at one point and let him out uh, a window in the East Room. And then uh, just to trick him and and lead him outside. And uh, he came back. He insisted on getting in. He finally got some help from, I believe, a member of Congress. And he was able to get in. And he stood in line, and when Lincoln saw him, he said, yeah, he hey, makes a big show. Yeah, he makes my a big friend, Miss Frederick Douglass, and uh, Mr. Douglass. And he, Lincoln asks Douglass what he thought of the speech, and Douglass said, "Oh, you, you don't want my my opinion." And he said, "Oh, I do too." And uh, Douglass said, "Mr. President, it was a sacred effort," and that's that was Douglass's view of it. He was often bitterly critical of Lincoln, but he found this speech saying this war was about slavery and slavery was a great crime. He thought that was incredibly profound. 
What was Lincoln trying to show? I cut you off there for a second, but what was Lincoln trying to show as he says, ah, here comes my friend Douglas, and he says it out loud so all the people around can hear? I think, I think Lincoln didn't have a racist bone in his body. He, he did admire Douglas. He did realize the kind of influence he had. Douglas, when he came into the White House, uh, said, and we got to understand this was a completely different society back then. The society had relentlessly propagandized that blacks were inferior to whites, almost a different, a different species almost. And Lincoln had no prejudice. He brought Douglas in. He was interested in his ideas. He was, uh, he had a, respectful discussion with him. Um, and Douglas said at one point, he's the only white person in power who ever reminded me that he and I share different places in society. Right. He, he said he, he's the only one who didn't make the unpopularity of my race a point uh, in the discussion. And, and of course, Andrew Johnson, who followed Lincoln, grievously offended uh, Douglas by doing just that. So Lincoln was Lincoln was able to probably because he came up from poverty himself and worked as a field laborer. He he was able to deal with all people at all levels of life, and he respected people. He understood that people at all levels of life are intelligent, have something to contribute, and have something to say of, of use to them. So he and he recognized Douglas's keen intelligence. I mean, the, Douglas is. I mean, I write. He's he's the second character in the book after Lincoln, and the and I write about the arc of their relationship. I think that's one of the driving narratives of the book. How Douglas really detested Lincoln. He considered him a a craven politician, and as the war went on, as he saw what Lincoln was doing, he came to have a very different opinion of Lincoln. He would this admire him greatly. Would the speech have been seen as so good if Lincoln hadn't died, you know, a month and a half later? I think so. I mean, look at it, listen to it, hear, hear the beauty of the language. I think it would be, I think it, it will, would always be, a beautiful treatment of that horrific war and all the suffering that people endured during that war. So I think it would have been. I think though after what happened after Lincoln was was killed is he he became a martyr. And uh it almost it became fiercely politically incorrect to criticize him in any way. So what was whitewashed out of history was all the, the bitter hatred he endured as a president. I mean, he was vilified in the press. He was considered a tyrant. He was, I write about this at length in the book about how much his enemies detested him and how he just persisted and kept on in spite of this nonstop barrage of hatred. And uh, he did have the, the people of the United States behind him, and he did have the soldiers behind him. And that's what sustained him. No one can be Abraham Lincoln, and it wouldn't be fair to compare any president to Abraham Lincoln, certainly none that are, um, you know, certainly none of the last, you know, 50 <laughs> years or so, and probably of the next 50 years. Uh, but I guess who knows? Um, uh, Abraham Lincoln is, you know, a legend of American history, and the speech is obviously legendary, as we've described here. What should every president, uh, what page should every president take from Lincoln's second inaugural to inform their own um, speech writing as they prepare to give an inaugural address? What did he leave behind that a president can emulate? I, I hope they would emulate his love of America. Uh, and its institutions. Um, he fought this war, this horrific war, because he considered uh, America the last best hope of Earth, that its free institutions 
uh, its ability, its um, its its uh, governmental structure that permitted people the ability to rise in life the way he did. He considered this of inestimable value, uh, and I would hope whoever is president would would understand that. And he also had a unique ability not to hate his enemies. He viewed people, viewed the people of the South, he said, uh, I think in his Cooper Union address, if I was in the South, I would have the same attitude towards slavery as they do. I mean, this is the conditions they were brought up in, and this was their economy. Um, so I, I think he wouldn't, he didn't vilify his enemies, which is something very rare. Uh, the Republicans, the radical Republicans he worked with in Congress wanted to punish the leaders of the South, the people of the South, so they would never again attempt to uh, rise up against uh, the United States. And they wanted to protect the black uh, former slaves in the South. And they thought the Southern establishment would not do that. So Lincoln, Lincoln was. I mean, he did not believe in a course of punishing his enemies. He believed, look, we can disagree on politics, but we have to come together around this beautiful concept of America, its free institutions, its ability for people to rise in life. And that's what he fought for his whole life. Edward Acorn, the author of Every Drop of Blood, the momentous second inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. Thank you so much for joining us. Evan, thank you. Certainly check out that book and also his website, edacorn.com. He's also on Twitter at ed underscore acorn. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>